Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hello and welcome to Coral Chihuahua. <laughs> cool suspension. For this edition of the podcast, um, we're talking about young voices today, young singers. And I'm really, really thrilled to be joined by two people who I've seen work for years and have admired for a long time. Um, Today's guests are Anita Morrison, who teaches uh, singing at, well, you can tell us, Anita, where do you teach? Well, currently, um, I teach at Cardinal Vaughan School, um, where Scott's director of music. I teach the uh, Scola at London Oratory School. I teach boys at St George's at Windsor. I teach the St John's Choristers in Cambridge. Um, and I did for nearly 30 years, I used to teach the choruses at Westminster Cathedral. That's where I got most of my experience um, and um, just sort of, yeah, worked out how to do it. Nice. Well, lucky them. We'll come and talk about that, to come back to that uh, in a minute. And the second guest is Scott Price, who is, well, director of music at Cardinal Vaughan, but so much more. Scott, tell us a bit about what you do and what you've been up to. Well, I am, yes, the director of music at the Cardinal Vaughan School, where I've worked for well, close to 30 years now, um, 1995 when I came to the school, unbelievably. Um, and and one of the things I do here is run the scholar, the, the boys' choir that we have. And um, and we have a lot of fun with that, yeah. So so we can maybe talk about that a little bit more. But uh, but that's essentially me. I work at the school and I, I seem to have always done. Yeah, lovely. Well, it feels like a, a life sentence of a good kind, maybe. Let's crack on with some music uh, first up. Um, Scott, you've brought the first track today, which is a, a sort of particularly kind of personal choice for you, is it? Well, I just thought, um, having heard you very kindly mentioned us in the last episode, and you talked about Malachi, who's this uh, extraordinary boy that we have here at the moment, uh, who's been doing so very well. And um, it's just been announced in the week that he's been signed to Universal, and uh, his album is coming out. I was looking who else is on the same label, people like Stevie Wonder and Andrea Bocelli. It's quite a list. Um, so bless him. So uh, so I thought maybe it would be lovely to hear a, rec- a track rather from his, his forthcoming record. They've released one single. Um, this is the, the, the Lloyd Webber Pia Yezu, which is uh, what he sang when he appeared on, on Britain's Got Talent and in the initial audition. And... Um, and got his 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 golden buzzer from Simon Cowell. So, uh, so this is Malachi singing that. 
that was Malachi Bayo singing Pia Yezu by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, now, he's an extraordinary kid, isn't he, Scott? Well, both of you, because you teach him as well, Anita, is that right? That's right, yes. I see him every couple of weeks for a lesson. Um, Scott, do you want to just tell us a little bit about, about his journey and how you've... I mean, what, how, do you, how do you discover something like that? What do, you, what do you do with a boy who's obviously so extraordinarily musical and um, committed like that? Yeah, it's it's been a real roller coaster uh, the last six months, especially a real adventure and all new territory. Obviously, we've been in. Um, it, it's important to acknowledge, and I'd want to say straight away that he he started singing at, at St George's Cathedral when he was seven, and um, and so when he came to us in the first year when he was eleven, he'd already got uh, uh, quite a lot of singing experience, and he already had the kind of the very the very lovely voice that that, that he that he kind of has. It was there, the kernel of it certainly was there. And the, and the quality of it, which is unusual, I think, it's it's, it's not a your standard treble singing voice. Anita can maybe talk more about that, but but um, but it, it was already there and, and already very expressive. Um, and I, I think the first um, time I realised there was something extraordinary about it. Actually, you were there, Nick. It was when we when we did the John Passion in in March of twenty two. And we'd been, you know, we were performing the piece and it was all going along fine and everyone was doing what they should do. And then he got up towards the end to sing Zerflisa and just completely floored the place. And, and the atmosphere was just transformed by this extraordinary performance. And it was the the first real sign of, of, of how gifted he is, I think. And people still talk to me about that performance, you know, musicians who were playing in the orchestra and people who were in the audience. And... Um, so soon after that, then he was doing. He played the role of Oberta. He got the part of Oberta at the Covent Garden in Alcina, and um, and did very very well with that. Um, and, and there was an unfortunate incident which gathered a lot of publicity at the time. Of course, people might remember when someone shouted out um, in the audience, which which only helped to really, in a sense, to bring him to people's attention more. And then Classic FM got in touch. Ali Jones. Uh, who was wonderful with all this? Uh, uh, made made the videos with him that that we did at Christmas time, and and those went viral. Uh, I think twenty five million views of him singing "Oh Holy Night," um, and then you know in January he did the Britain's Got Talent thing, and um, that was released then in April. I think that's had fifty five million views now since then, all around the world. He really there's something about him that just on the internet seems to absolutely capture people's you know hearts and and imaginations and that the response to him is just universally positive and um and and the great thing about it i was thinking about this you know the great thing about him is that behind all the hype and the fuss especially with the the bgt show nonetheless behind all that there is a really genuinely very gifted boy a very talented boy he's when he got to watch his performances at the albert hall uh, when he sang handel and mozart with uh, the orchestra of eno to see just how genuinely gifted he is you know it's remarkable actually um yeah there's proper substance isn't there behind it i mean i, I remember that that john passion mostly for the Tef Lisa that he sang which and there's always something amazing I, th- I think about boys singing that music you know it was written for young for young voices obviously but not just for that because i just remember him because obviously that he was singing in the choir as well which is which is absolutely brilliant and he sang every single chorus and there's a lot of it in that piece Sang every single chorus right from his heart, and and he was in he was dramatically involved, and he was he was also incredibly emotionally involved in the story, which isn't like you say is an unusual thing for a kid of that age. 
um, I, I, I will never forget that. I think you know it's, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary display of of kind of commitment and, and musicality. Um, Anita, can you talk a bit about what you how how you've worked with Malachi? What's you know what happens with that kind of um, musical personality? He has got um, a distinctive voice, but I I do I always think that every single boy that I teach has their own distinctive voice, which is really important. And with Malachi, it was. He, he was always just able to sing the notes. There was never any problem with him getting around the notes. Um, but we worked very hard on him really taking ownership of it, really understanding the text. I remember vividly, we quite often, we, and he needed reminding, but he would take an idea usually and then he would really run with it. With it. Um, so, for example, the Seflisse mein Helzer in Fluten der um, I used to think of it, it being that Fluten was floods. So we started, you know, uh, we, if you sing it thinking in floods of tears, you sing it one way. And I just sort of had a little look just to double check that I'd got the translation right. And, and it was melts, the translation I found. And so we played with it thinking about melting and how that changed the vocal colour, how that... And and it's it's just so lovely to be able to work in that way. And I think that was the key to the way that he sang it, was getting that melting, flowing in that way to, to, to really bring it to life, which is how I've worked with him. Well, I tend to work with most of my students, try to work from the text and feeling how the text changes the colour um, and your emotional engagement with the music and with your voice and exploring um, all of those differences and, and the wonderful things that the voice is capable of so that you develop more choice. Yeah, we talk a, a fair bit on this about uh, it, things like intent and, and intention and you know, obviously text and poetry. What, what is it, how does it, how does that work with a younger voice? Is their imagination fired up in the same way or do you have to, are the keys to it slightly, in a slightly different place for them? It's to try to get it, um, to find images, try thoughts that they can relate to. Um, of course, you know, they won't understand anything that they can't, um, they haven't experienced themselves. They can't draw on something they haven't experienced. So, you know, trying to find find something or an occasion uh, when, or even thinking about, you know, melting chocolate or what does, it can be anything. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's just to try and wake that imagination up. And because I, I really do, in my heart of hearts, believe that, that anyone um, can find any of this and sing with that level of uh, sort of quality, if they find the right intention, if you have the right intention for your voice, that um, that you can really anyone can do anything. And I think the boys, if I can get them out of their own way and get them into their singing brains um, and out of their um, out of their intellectual brains, um, where they're overthinking all the time, um, then that's when the magic starts to happen. Yeah, that's lovely. Um- Let's let's hear another track, shall we? What have you brought for us, Anita? Well, I've brought. Um, I teach the boys at 
um, London Oratory as well. Um, and they sing a lot of, uh, of polyphony. And I thought this was a really nice example of them. Um, it's uh, Resonet in Laudibus by Lassus. That was Resonant in Laudibus by Orlando di Lasso um, with the scholar of the London Oratory School uh, conducted by Charles Cole. Now, that's a really vibrant sound, Anita, fr- from trebles as well as lower voices. What's what's that like to work with? They're, they're wonderful. So this is a sort of young, we've got younger boys um, at the Oratory than we have at Cardinal Vaughan um, because they have a junior house. So we actually do get them in year four. Um, 
and then we try to keep them singing right the way through and on the whole um, the Schola choir then is made up of uh, the lower voices are then the the fifth and sixth forms uh, boys so um, it's a really young energetic sound in the recording we did bump it up with a couple of um, adults but the really big um, Charles tries to keep that to a minimum to get that young that young he liked that young vibrant um, sound but um, hopefully you think in a in a refined way and that there's a lot of shape and some and color and uh, but not losing any of that um, that youth not making them sound um, older than they are yeah I guess that's a balance we're all trying to achieve this kind of the the payoff between energy and vibrancy and commitment and refinement and finesse and precision, I suppose. And that, that, that goes for every singer of every level, I guess. Um, Scott, can I just come to you? I, I, my sense is, uh, we talk about lower voices in the oratory scholar. My sense is that you're in Cardinal Vaughan, well, both of you are really good at keeping boys singing um, as their voices change, which I think is really, feels really important. I, I, I was a treble at Liverpool Met and just stopped when my voice changed. And I was slightly, always slightly um, regret that in a way that I only took singing up a bit later then. Um, can you talk to us a bit, Scott, about building a choral tradition in a school in that way that allows boys to feel they can sing, I suppose, throughout their time there, um, through that, it can be an embarrassing time, can't it? How should a choral tradition work? What does it give the school, I suppose? I'd like to think about that a bit. Uh, and can we also talk about the the school as a, a place that of education, but also of artistic endeavour, and how those things, uh, well, complement or conflict with each other? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's an awful lot there. Um, yeah, certainly in terms of of retention, if you like, of the boys, keeping them singing um, as their voices change. I guess in the old days, as it were, there was the the view that they should stop, and you still hear this said. And I think for, uh, every boy is different. The voice change. And Anita will, will talk about this, I'm sure, more. But every boy is different. But but uh, and some boys perhaps do need to stop for a little while because they they have no range at all. But I think in, in my experience here, most of the boys can and do carry on singing. We run a, a group called the Cambiata, which um, is uh, where the boys who are in that kind of in between phase um, go and and do their singing. All the boys carry on singing in the big choir that we have, doing what I call a bit of gentle bass, just to be still involved. Because what you don't want to do is, is in a school context, is is have the boys associate their singing with something they did when they were little, uh, little you know, when they were children, and that now that they're all grown up, um, that that they don't want to do it anymore. So you don't want to lose them that way. So it's very important to try and keep it going in the in their kind of daily routines and in in their sort of in their lives. And to also to maintain the friendship groups, which is so important in schools as well. You know, the choir, all music making in the school works best when the kids are friends and come come as a unit. You know, so so we do try to keep it going. I'm I'm very lucky here that I'm able to give all the boys uh, one of the many ways in which the school supports what we do is that it gives all the boys in, uh, uh, singing lessons. So as soon as the voice is in that sort of changing phase we'll as soon as there's something there to work with we will then give them singing lessons and bring them on that way um yeah in terms of the just the general culture of the school and singing you know i'm quite proud of what we have here at the school in terms of the singing culture 
Um, I, I think it's terribly important that the choir reflects the school from which it comes. You know, that, that any any choir needs to reflect its community. I think kind of where it's drawn from, and, and be and be relevant and, and important to that community. So, so being a faith school here, um, you know, our choir has a sort of natural reason to exist, given that because it serves the, our liturgies. Um, but I'm sure that can be created in a non-faith school as well. You can find equally find a purpose and a reason for the choir to, to you know, to be there and to make it central to what's going on in the school. I think is quite important. Um, the thing about he's talking about the question of the artistic if you like, ambitions of the choir versus the kind of educational aspects is something as well that I I find quite interesting um, because certainly in terms of, let's say, the choir size, the choir would perhaps sound a little bit more refined if it was a bit smaller, if there if wasn't 60, if it was 40. I'm talking about my choir now, obviously. But, of course, then it, it then it, the, it, the impact of it educationally is, is lessened and, and, and its its place in the school becomes less. So there's this balance that you don't want it to be huge because that changes its 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 capabilities, obviously musically. But equally, you don't want it to become too small and too exclusive and appear to be something that that uh, that is kind of overprivileged, you know, within within the community. Yeah, there's there's. Um, I always think that the German choirs, the German boys' choirs, seem to get this right. You know, they they have the size, the Tamanakol essay, you know seems to balance this uh, the pedagogical aspect of the choir the teaching aspect the the children needing to learn music to balance that alongside the kind of artistic ambitions that you might have you know and going back to what Anita was saying about the lower voices on the recording there and the same with my boys you know it, it's obviously it doesn't sound they don't sound like adult men singing um but that's great that that isn't a problem that's actually a lovely thing they, uh, they don't sound quite like the the back row of Johns or Kings, which is which are slightly older young men, obviously singing. But there's but there's something in their own terms. They're their own thing, and I think that um, that it, it it can be enjoyed, you know, for what it is really. And and um, and that's the great joy, I think, of choral singing that it's so incredibly flexible. You know, there's no right or wrong, or, or no correct sound that is the only one that's acceptable. You know, and and. Uh, so yeah, it's it's certainly um, it's a very interesting aspect of, of of what we do, trying to keep the boys going as the voices change, and uh, there's lots to it. Yeah, can you just talk a little bit? Loads of good stuff there. Can you just talk a bit, a little bit about um, how you integrate what the choir does into the into school life? I mean, is the school really aware? You know, how how are they aware of what's going on with the choir? How do the, how does the choir kind of present itself within? within the school or within the community, I suppose? So our choir exists, as it were, primarily, I always say, and it is true that it exists to sing at the lower school mass that we have every every Wednesday morning. So 8 o'clock on a Wednesday morning, um, the boys are there and we sing for the mass. So in that sense, it's, it's very present. It's present weekly, you know, in the school. Um, any big occasions that the school has, and, and obviously things as well like our Foundation Day and uh, our Holidays of Obligation, where we would go to the local church and have the whole school together, or if we go to Westminster Cathedral, then the choir is very much present um, there. Um, I, I sometimes wonder, the boys, even here, even with the culture that we have here, even here, the boys are sometimes a little bit wary of, of singing and, you know, in, in a school context with, with other boys and the way that they'll 
um, sort of respond to them. And and I wonder if I was in a different school where I was trying to start out something like this. I, th I think what I might do initially is is take the choir outside of school, uh, find the performance opportunity that that wasn't necessarily school based, just to give them some confidence, you know, and and to feel that that uh, that they weren't necessarily going to be kind of. Uh, watched by their peers quite so and, and until they've developed a little bit of confidence and got and got some uh, some sort of sense of security in what they're doing but then certainly here now the the boys are very happy to sing in front of of, of their peers and, and it's just part of the sort of school routine and I think that but the other kids in the school just because children don't know any different because that you know their reality is their reality they they just simply accept it as being what uh, uh, the way this school is you know we have this choir that sings at the back of the hall and sings all this church music you know it's kind of imagine the way the way a lot, a lot of them see it you know um and the boys in it certainly are terribly proud I'm, I'm you know I know they are they're terribly proud of being part of it I think largely because of the ambition of it you know because it, it it's its aims are so kind of ambitious I'm not, not saying we always get there but certainly what we're trying to achieve is is a very sort of high standard of performance. Uh, and then the opportunities as well, the things that the boys do here, you know, singing at Covent Garden and um, singing on film soundtracks and, and the like, Th these kind of opportunities are obviously quite uh, something, So, it, which obviously helps to motivate the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Can, can we just circle back a bit about to talk about voices as they change, Anita? And can you, can you give us your perspective on what, what it is you're trying to give a voice through that slightly tricky time i well i work when i work with a boy whose voice is starting to change i try to be absolutely upfront with them and and explain exactly what's going on because it can be a very scary time and they're like you know they've been singing quite comfortably and then weird things start to happen so i think it's really important that they that's when i start to talk to them a little bit about anatomy and how the voice is produced and um and so, and I say to them, you, you won't, you'll probably wake up, you know, each day and it'll feel different every day. Don't expect it to sound the same. Don't expect it to feel the same. Um, and generally, I'm happy for them to keep going as long as they know where they're comfortable to sing. The, um, the important thing for me is whether they can onset onto the onto their voice cleanly so if you get any sort of sea lions seal noises um at the beginning that's when when i think they should definitely stop but if it sounds easy if the onset's easy if their breath's flowing they're not making any sort of muscular compensations they're not starting to you know to to strain with their neck or whatever then I see no reason why they can't keep going as long as they don't don't over try um, to to sing higher than they're capable of and I think we've managed to um, help the boys to take responsibility for themselves that's that's important for me that they they start to take responsibility for their own singing they know what they're capable of that they can they can track their development and um, and then it's lovely. I see them. Um, they all, most, a lot of the boys get um, a lesson every week. Certainly, I'm I'm in every fortnight, and a colleague of mine sees them as well. We work together, so the boys have a lot of singing lessons. So we can track them, and we really know when they when they should either move down to alto or 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 maybe they can keep going a little bit 
um, if their voice separates out and they sing a bit of alto, but then maybe in the main choir or when they're singing hymns, start to gently experiment with their new voices. Because I see no reason why they shouldn't start using their new voices. Um, well, and actually, I think it's really important they start to use their changed voices because that informs their falsetto as that comes. And actually, then the falsetto gets better. Um, and, you know, we often track that it all goes very wobbly and then their uh, lower voice settles out. And actually, then they're able to keep going singing some alto for even longer, um, as long as they don't expect to be sounding the same as they did when they were treble. treble they have to sort of let that go. Um, so that's, yeah, and every single boy is completely different. It's, it's trying to um, just give them that individual attention and uh, make sure that they're all safe and healthy. It, safe and healthy is the important thing. Yeah, that's lovely. Is it, I'd like to ask both of you a little bit about what you do, thinking about Malachi, but also any treble, really. They, they get to 12 and 13, they're brilliant at something. I mean, you know, genuinely world-class. And then they could wake up the next morning and suddenly that could all be gone. How do you how do you kind of coax them through that sense of uncertainty and that sense that of work that's been done that has been just just as swiftly undone? Is there are there any sort of I don't know tips that you can offer for that to to make sure that they don't become discouraged or become demoralised by the whole process? For me, as um, at that time, I suppose it's really to try and reinforce to them that everything that they've done um, doesn't change when their voice changes. Everything that they've set up, um, if they're singing well and they've um, worked on you know, certainly getting their good alignment and all of, the, all of the things that trigger their good singing and all of the things, the way that they think, that their voice will show them where, where it wants to go and that it, it's... Um, they will be able to carry on with making music once it once it settles and to always have that in the back of their mind that nothing none of that changes yeah the principles are exactly the same aren't they absolutely yeah i think seeing it as being a new adventure is the way that i often put it to the boys you know that they've got this extraordinary new instrument that that's coming I mean, what I find with, with the boys here is is that it's it's about the change in their routine as much as the as, as the loss of voice as well. Because of course, uh, we rehearse virtually every morning, and so the, the boys' form class, if you like, is the scholar rather than the form that they're in. Um, and and they now have to go back into sort of the into the, the downstairs. We're on the top floor here, so they go back down into the sort of you know into the reality of the school, as it were. And I think the change can be quite. Um, stressful for them but I, I generally find most boys because of the kind of changes the hormonal changes that come with the voice change well a lot of them aren't necessarily too upset they kind of accept it as something that's just coming their way but occasionally you will get a boy who genuinely you know really can't imagine what he's going to do without being able to be be involved in all the music making the way that he has been and, and um I, I guess you just have to, you know, you have to sort of do what you can to sort of comfort them through that, really, and and tell them that, that they'd be a very strange man if their voice never changed. You know, they they would they would be unusual. <laughs> um, but so it can be a trauma, yeah. But I think for most boys it isn't. I think most boys take it in their stride, you know. And and um, I mean, certainly what I find is a is a challenge with it is that as Anita was mentioning then about the voice separating, that it would be much easier if 
if the boys' voices just slipped down gradually, you know, if they lost one note a week or something from the top, and they, but the voice remained much the same. But of course, that isn't the way it works. What tends to happen is you get holes develop in the middle of the voice, which leaves them unable to really contribute to things as they used to. Um, some boys' voices don't do that. Some boys' um, voices will will um, will slip down gradually, but generally, I think these holes emerge and um, and. Uh, yeah, very difficult to kind of um, keep them completely happy through that time. But but most of them seem to take it in their stride. Yeah. Yeah, they, like you say, their reality is they, they don't know any difference, they? So they, do they? So they 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 sort of they're resilient in that sense, I suppose. Um, let's have a bit more music, Scott. This is this next one's yours. So I thought it might be nice to hear the boys sing. Um, this is Owen Park's Cradle Lullaby, um, which we recorded on a Christmas CD that we made, Christmas Music Today, uh, with with Boys, Voices and Harp. And um, and I asked on the, on Twitter if anybody could recommend pieces, and, and Owen said to me that, that this piece would work, which I think it does very beautifully. It's a very beautiful piece. And, um, yeah, I just thought it would maybe show maybe the kind of sound that, that I'm trying to get the boys to make, which, if I was going to describe it, is, is quite a free and... and and open sound, and I think that's what everybody wants when people sing. I'm sure, but um, expressive, you know, and and, um, and and there's a lovely solo one here from a boy called Oliver, who is now six foot three, I think, and uh, and certainly couldn't sing um, like this anymore, but has got now the most lovely tenor voice. So there's there's light at the end of the tunnel with the voice change. So this is the Cradle Lullaby by Owen Park.
That was uh, Owen Park's Cradle Lullaby, sung by the scholar of Cardinal Vaughan Memorial School um, with harpist Zeta Silva and the soloist there was Oliver Smith. Um, now, Anita, can I just come to you and talk a bit about uh, when I've seen you work and I've, I've seen, I sang at Westminster Cathedral for a while and also um, I've seen you with both um, Scots and Charles's choirs. Um, when you warm the boys up, when you work with them, you do loads of physical stuff. Is that, is that, can you tell us a bit about that? Is it Feldenkrais or is it a mix of stuff or? It, that's a, that is a mix of stuff. I did that way before I trained as a Feldenkrais practitioner. But I do incorporate, of course, my Feldenkrais way of thinking. But I've, I had an amazing singing teacher when I was um, doing my degree. And she worked very physically. And it just felt like it worked. And um, so I've always um, started from uh, gesture and using gesture because it feels like I can sort of get in through the back door. It becomes a sort of much, so starting with that sort of implicit way of working. So they don't know that they're learning, but you can get them to learn all sorts of skills. Um, And I suppose the more that I've um, experimented with my Feldenkrais as well, that we mess around with gestures and see what different types of gestures do to the voice so you know we do things like um bouncing <clears throat> bouncing balls we might do accents and we might like do little sharp bounces and that makes the voice do one thing whereas if we do like stroking the cat sort of type of feeling that makes the voice do something else um doing um for starting sounds i do quite a lot of either stepping into sound, stepping backwards, feeling like you're sinking into different textures into the floor. So something that's got a bit more spring or something that's hard will will affect the voice in different ways. Or if you I often do pulling things and if you, you know, pull something with if you tug it, it will make the onset happen in one way. If you do it gently and have more resistance or less resistance or move your arm through chocolate or um, or water or or just air the effect is different on the voice and that's what is lovely for the boys to experience that so that um so that then they develop choices and they sort of develop some skills that then just automatically i hope start to come through in the music and in the way they sing and what's demanded of them uh in a, a more formal sort of choral setting. And it also gets them out of the stalls. Um, yeah, I'd like to talk about that a bit more, actually. M- my sense is that what, what you're trying to do is basically um, not tell them that you're teaching them, <laughs> that, that, you, that you, you're trying to give them a whole range of options, none of which are to do with just technical nuts and bolts. And I don't mean that in a negative way, because singing, I think, I think it's really it's often misunderstood in all sorts of places. It's not really a technical thing primarily it's a communicative uh, expressive thing right and as soon as we access the range of communication that we all have that can inform all of our singing now you mentioned the stalls is there something you're able to do with boys who aren't required to sing so many services a week you know the, the kids at the at Westminster Cathedral for example had eight, eight or nine services a week is there a speed of coverage of material that's that that makes that work 
more difficult to integrate or is that even more useful? It is a challenge because they're having to be in their heads so much, um, which is why I try to get them into their bodies as much as I possibly can. And also and to give them some ideas, whether they take them on board. Um, you know, I, I really, the Feldenkrais idea of um, good posture, um, and he doesn't like posture as a word, actually. He, he, he used a word which was acture, which I really prefer. So the way you act is the ability to move in any direction at any moment of time without any preparation. So by playing with that as an idea that you can do big movements and we can do lots of weight shifting and, and feel how the rest of the body responds to that weight shift and then be able to take it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller so that it almost goes into your imagination and it's imperceivable, but you're, not, you're never required to stand still. There shouldn't be any requirement to stand still. There's always something moving. And also, I suppose with that thought, I try and feed that in as sort of potential for everything. So whether that's the way that you develop a sound, you never sort of take yourself down a, down a dead end. There's always got to be potential. The way your tongue's moving, the way your jaw's moving, that everything, you, there's not a position for anything. If you try to find a position, then you're restricting yourself. Um, and I think that that seems to feed in to that having to work in the stalls um, in, in many ways. Sometimes I do find myself just saying, for goodness sake, just stand on both feet. You know, when I see them like lolloping over onto onto one hip and I try and find all sorts of um, uh, different ways of getting them to sense that. And, and, I, and I have to just go, right, when they're ready to take that on board, they'll take it on board. And I, I have, you know, not get myself frustrated when I know that actually it's going to help. Um, more than they realise. <laughs> yeah, I suspect, I suspect we can all relate to that in, in some degree. Scott, can I just talk to, come to you about sort of amount, the amount of stuff you're able to do with the kids and the speed of preparation? What what enables you? I mean, we, you and I did the Vesp, Monteverdi Vespers, which is a really hard. There's a lot of notes apart from anything else. Uh, yeah. A months ago, how, how do you get how do you get through so much rep with the with the kids? Um. Well, I, I, I mean, we do rehearse a fair amount and we don't have, of course, our school mass doesn't involve a great deal of music. So I don't have a kind of liturgical you know, responsibility the way that a choir of this kind would often have, which does free us up to do um, more, you know, a more varied approach, perhaps. You know, we kind of have to have that really because there isn't the driving force of the liturgy driving us forward. So I need to constantly be finding things for us to do to keep the whole thing moving forward um but there is i was thinking the other day we were learning uh, we went we were lucky enough to be asked to go and sing at the the thomas kirche back in february and we did three days singing um replacing the tomanachor for the motet and and they asked us to sing jesumina freude uh, which i've never done before and we, so we started learning it in in january and and of course it's it's difficult and in, in and at first the boys as in the first time they see it, they, they find it, they struggle slightly and it was a bit of a challenge. And then the following day they come back and they can all sing it. And I don't know exactly what's happened. And it does scare me that I don't fully understand that process 
I think sleeping on it is a very important thing. I think actually, isn't it? That's key to it, really. But but they, it was it was incredibly striking with bits of that of the years of Friday that they they were struggling, and then they came back the following day, and they seemed to be able to do it. And and the answers I think really in terms of the the amount of music we do is is obviously that they it's obviously entirely reliant on reading, and uh, and within a boys' choir like. I, I, well, I imagine most boys' choirs. There's a different. There are different levels of of reading ability. So some of the boys read as well as I do, and are very confident readers. It's quite remarkable. Some of them, others are getting better and better at it all the time. And there are some boys who probably can't read a note really. And um, but the whole thing works, and they get carried along together. I remember there was a years ago we had a boy who was a wonderful singer, um, and he wouldn't look at the music. And I remember him sight reading something at the top of his voice, looking out the window. Uh, and he was just singing ever so slightly behind what everyone else did, with, with, but with extraordinary confidence and, and, and accuracy, you know. But, so there's different ways of doing it, really. But yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the reason we can get through so much music the way we do is because the boys read. And, um, and it's all, it's, from day one, there's this emphasis on reading. Um, I find that if you do lots of polyphony with them, that that is the best teacher for reading, really, just singing polyphony, because obviously, in a sense, it's simpler in some respects, rhythmically and and uh, in terms of intervals and what have you. Um, and uh, so I often, I, I will try as much as I possibly can to have some polyphony in every rehearsal that I do, regardless of what we've got going on. I could talk about this for hours, couldn't we? Before we hear our last track, can we hear a little bit about how each of you got to where you got to? You know, what how... All of us, I guess, who end up, you know, doing musical endeavours have had brilliant musical teachers along the way or brilliant teachers of other subjects, I guess. Anita, how did you how did you end up where you are? What, was, what were the formative um, elements in your life? Well, I suppose by accident is the answer, really. Actually, I wanted to be a speech therapist was my very first thing. Um, and then I messed my A-levels up. And ended up going through clearing and training as a primary school teacher with music specialism. And I moved from my science A-levels, which I flunked, to going back to my music because I had a musical background. I was a junior at Trinity and I played the French horn and I started singing quite a bit later. And that then I started and my singing took over. I did my dissertation um, on uh, should children be taught how to sing. So at that point, I was really interested in whether it was a good thing to teach children how to do it. And that's when I started to develop all these um, sort of gestures. And I was just working in a class in class music and used that as my sort of research. Um, and then I went on to Guildhall um, and I did, well, I did three years of postgrad at the Guildhall, um, the, the song, uh, the vocal training course then two years on the opera course, and then I went to National Opera Studio. But while I was at on the opera course, um, the job came up at Westminster Cathedral, and one of the coaches there um, knew I was, I'd worked with children, and I was a singer, and I was recommended, and I just went to James O'Donnell, and he gave me the job. I, he, I'd never taught trebles, I, but I'm, you know, I was singing at quite a high level, and I taught primary school age. Um, and that's where I cut my teeth and he was extraordinary and just let me do whatever I wanted. I mean, I did mad stuff and I pulled the kids around the room and, you know, we did all the gestures and he let me do, I had 20 minutes to warm them up. Um, and I did all of my weird wacky stuff. 
And then that sort of led to me, um, actually I taught at Eton for a while, so I then did teach the trebles and changing voices. And then, you know, I just got known for, for well, not specialising, because I still have young professional singers and I teach undergraduates in Cambridge as well. I teach chorus scholars at Selwyn. So I, you know, I teach the whole gamut and my oldest student is in her 80s, who I've taught for over 20 years. And I love teaching anybody who wants to sing. But, um, but that's how I've ended up really teaching trebles. And I just love it so much. It's, and I don't really perform at all anymore. It's, that's just taken over my life. But it has been a bit of an accident. Yeah, I know that feeling. And do you miss the performing at all? Do you feel that there's a, there's a gap there? Uh, you... Not really. Um, I don't think I was a natural stage animal. That all happened slightly by accident. I loved the song repertoire. I loved the poetry. That's where I came from was, um, it was, Debussy was my thing when I was, you know, that, that was what I really loved singing. Um, and then I, everybody auditioned for the opera course at the Guildhall. I'd never stepped foot on stage and I always felt a bit like a fish out of water. I never really enjoyed doing orator- oratorio other than like things like Nelson Mass, I loved because that was music making and it's all within an ensemble. The standing out and doing an aria and then sitting down for hours, um, really, I, I hated. Um, and it's a bit weird, isn't it? Opera, I know, and opera-wise, <laughs> I loved the big ensemble. I, operas, I sang Alice in Falstaff and I loved that because it was all, and Cosi and Marriage Figaro, Marriage of Figaro a bit less because, again, you're, you know, you, you're there, you've got your big arias. Because I loved, you know, because there's so, when there's all that group music making ensemble and working with other people and refining it and listening to diphthongs and really, um, that was the singing that I loved. So actually, um, no, um, I don't really miss it at all. Yeah, that's, a, no, that's a good answer. It's interesting to hear that. Um, we could talk for hours about the, the about why we sing in ensembles or why we sing solos and that kind of stuff as well. There's lots of lots of things to think about. Scott, tell us about your you, you retain, I think, your lyrical Welsh lilt. Yeah, <laughs> yes, indeed, I'm I'm Welsh. Uh, I feel a little bit of a fraud actually, in a sense, on on this podcast because I because I don't really have a background in choral singing. Um, I guess I sang as a child and I had quite a good treble voice, as I recall, but I wasn't a chorister. And uh, and didn't enjoy any of those benefits, unfortunately. Um, and, and what I know, the little, very little I know about choral singing and training boys has been learned from Anita, mostly, I would say. Uh, my teacher is with us today. Um, <laughs> and it's been learned by doing it with with the kids here, you know, over the last, um, however long it's been now. And um, and so I don't really have that um, that particular background uh, as a trombonist, which I don't think if that, if, that, if that's ideal training for for choral tra- training, I don't know really, probably not. But that's that was my musical um, background. But but the way the way I've always approached it really is that music is music. I ha- you know I did do a lot of music. I did a lot of orchestral music, a lot of orchestral conducting, and and um, and it strikes me that essentially it's music making, and that's kind of been what I've been that's kind of what I've I've um, grounded myself with whilst at the same time you know going to watch people like James O'Donnell and Anita mentioned you know seeing the way that he worked with the boys being terribly open to trying to learn about uh, ways in which I can get better at this and, and I'm still and I still feel that way I was I was thinking that you know one of the one of the many joys of doing 
the the work that we do uh, for me anyway is that is that when I walk in the rehearsal in the morning every every day is like a new start every day feels like I, you know every day I'm going to try something slightly different every day I'm going to just have a slightly different take on things um and and so there's and so I'm very keen to try and you know learn and I think remaining open to learning and also and as I said being lucky enough to work with Anita who is extraordinary in the work she does with the boys and I'm sure anybody who's you know all the people who've been lucky enough to have their choirs trained by her would agree with that um that's been a massive privilege as well and I feel incredibly fortunate really to have had that opportunity thanks for that this look this, this is a huge topic and we're really only dealing with with a small part of it with the three of us today um we'll I think on the podcast we'll talk further about about female voices and and how, how they might change and what that kind of how that impacts um the singing voice um before we hear the last track which I think is something a little bit special um any advice that the two of you would give to your let's say yourselves 20 30 years ago without really revealing too many ages for me it's go with the flow don't plan too much um take advantage of every moment you have because everything uh every moment is a learning opportunity um that a knockback can be a learning opportunity i wasn't very good at dealing with those knockbacks um but they've made me, I think, stronger, even if they've made me made a, make a dis- different decision and go in a different direction. But I'm a great believer in fate and because, of, because it has been such a random journey for me um, and I'm very happy with where I am. Um, I'm actually very glad I'm not uh, in a hospital as a speech therapist. Um, I'm having a lot more fun, so... I think maybe not, but um, I'm very happy with where where life's taken me um, by just going with it. So, so I think if I was looking back at those years, one thing I would want to say to myself is to realise that um, that it's not a rehearsal, as it were. When you're doing these things, it's not there isn't some golden performance around the corner that's going to be a thousand times better. That you need to enjoy things for what they are. And and and, and one thing I've I've come to take greater pride in is is enjoying the sound since we're talking about the quiet to enjoy enjoying the sound that the boys make and 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 if i was to be uh, hoping it's going to sound like westminster cathedral choir and and not happy with it until it does then i think you'd never be happy because clearly it's never going to sound like that that isn't that isn't it's it, you know that shouldn't be the ambition and, and to take pride whilst of course being as ambitious for it as possible and we're trying to achieve as high a level as we can, but taking pride in it for what it is, I think, is uh, is something that it took me a little while to learn, and um, but I'm getting better and better at, and, and just enjoying it really, and enjoying enjoying the process, and and enjoying um, you know the the extraordinary privilege really of being able to work with these young people and to give them these opportunities and to see them grow and and, and love it so much. You know, I think it's 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 a real gift and. Uh, and, I th- and I'm very lucky to be doing this. That's lovely. Look, I think, uh, as I say, we could talk all day, but I think we should leave the listeners with uh, the final track, which is, I think, your choice, Anita. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Yes. So um, I've been working with the boys at St George's Windsor for quite a while now. Um, and James Vivian is wonderful to work with. Um, we work very collaboratively 
so I only go in once every couple of weeks. Um, so I share the teaching with Ben Alden, who's one of the one of the tenors in the choir, and he does a lot of work with the boys. But when I go in, I I usually have 20 minutes, half an hour with the boys, and we work, and James and I work collaboratively. So I'll do a little bit of a warm-up, and then he'll take bits and pieces out of um of what they've been working on during the week and we'll and we work um we sort of troubleshoot but it's you know we we I work physically with them and we you know try and find imagination things all sorts of stuff um and this track um was uh the the choruses sang at the queen's funeral of course for the committal and um we worked very hard. We were very lucky because they get through so much music. Um, you know, we, we get to a really good level and they're singing beautifully. But we had the opportunity to work in a huge amount of detail um, on the Harris, Bring Us O Lord God. Um, and I was so proud of those boys. Um, the colour that they found, we managed to get them really using their imagination. And and I do think it was, and with all of that pressure and the nerves on the day, they'd, they'd really embodied, they had time to really embody um, everything about it. So none of those nerves came across. And I just thought it was astonishing singing and absolutely beautiful. And I'm, I'm just very, very proud of what they achieved for that. Yeah, I think I remember hearing that and thinking, actually, this is, you know, such a big occasion. This distills so much of what we're, we're all trying to do all the time about about poetry and meaning and embodiment and music. Obviously, this this amazing poem um, and and the way that music elevates things like, like any occasion, really. I think, and I think it was, yeah, it's very special, very special piece, but a very a particularly special performance. Let's hear it.
That was William H. Harris's Bring Us, O Lord God, um, from the committal of the Queen's body last year with the Choir of St. George's Chapel, Windsor, conducted by James Vivian. Um, that's all we have time for, really. Thank you both so much for coming on. It's been so instructive and enlightening, illuminating to talk to you. As I say, we'll have you on again because there's so much more to talk about. But it's great to start this conversation, such a big topic, um, and great to hear such wisdom and humanity on the subject. Thanks both so much. Thank you. Complete pleasure. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon which costs just a few pounds per month. Or if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks. <laughs>